when we first got married, Sharon and I, we had a little unit just up here in Red Hill, and Daniel and Marriott's uh, son, who's a long-time good friend uh, of ours, of mine in particular, he bought us a big TV for a wedding gift. And um, 15 years ago, I think it's in the ballpark of 15 years, uh, big TVs were bigger than they are now. They might not have been bigger that way, but they were sort of deeper. You remember those really uh, huge, boxy TVs? And <coughs> I feel, I feel terrible to say this, so I told Jake at the time. Um, within days, uh, an electric storm hit whatever it was outside of our block of units and blew our new TV up. And we took that as something of a, of a sign from God um, that maybe, you know, we could go for a while without one. And we've been without one for 15 years because I just bought one a couple months ago. Now that doesn't mean that we're particularly holy because our house has about 60 other screens in it. Um, but anyway, um, I bought a TV, fourth child came along and I thought Sharon needs a bit of help from an electric, electronic babysitter. So we got, we got one of those. And um, one of the things that's great about like new TVs, a lot's, a lot's changed in TV te technology in um, 15 years, uh, is uh, we'll watch a movie with the kids occasionally and um, we kind of put a few options on the table and then we watch, because it's a smart TV, all the previews first and then the kids can kind of decide which of the three movies that we've kind of suggested they want to watch. So being able to watch the trailers, bang, 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 and then have a chat about what we're going to do together and then watch the, the films. Really convenient, all on the one screen. Um, but anyway, this thing happens sometimes. I don't know if you have ever come across this, where the trailer actually is not a particularly great indication of what happens in the feature. Um, and uh, there's one famous example of this in pop culture. It, uh, apparently, the, the Back to the Future trailer is a little bit misleading because how do you convey what happens in Back to the Future in two minutes. Um, it's just really difficult to do and I'm sure for the promoters of the films it must be really tempting too to just make it two minutes of the highlights like all the explosions and the kisses or whatever people like watching to kind of cram that into the trailer but so I'm kind of sympathetic but there's this thing that happens where the trailer isn't necessarily a great kind of overview doesn't give you the greatest idea about what is going to happen in the movie itself. Um, I'm looking forward to Christmas because uh, there's one movie that we watch every Christmas which um, brings me a lot of joy. Has anyone here seen the movie Elf with Will Ferrell? Could I see a show of hands? Uh, maybe, maybe a third, half of people. Well, great. This is going to go swimmingly then because uh, I'm going to show you in two minutes... Uh, a trailer uh, of the movie Elf. Brady, could you show us the Elf trailer, please? Okay, so if you've seen the movie Elf, was that the trailer for it? Uh, did that set you up well? If you haven't seen the movie Elf, you've got no idea what the movie Elf is about because as much as you might feel you wasted two minutes of your life watching that trailer, somebody has wasted hours of their life putting together a trailer for a ridiculous comedy to make it seem like a thriller. So they've taken scenes and they've edited it and they've added kind of that heavy music. And if you haven't seen the movie, you've got no idea what you're in for because that 
does not give you an impression of what happens in the film. Am I right, those who've seen it? And actually, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's, there's a certain brilliance <laughs> to it. It's kind of funny. Um, but I also realise that, uh, like Chris's Alanis Morissette pop culture reference last week, uh, you, can't hit, you can't get everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it did just make me think about how, um, you know, that there is this possibility in trying to tell a complex story in brief that you can get things wrong. And that's something I've been very conscious of with the book of Revelation. And it's the reason why um, we've, we've gone a bit deeper and maybe taking a bit longer. Uh, we're three sermons in and we're still in the prologue at the moment. Um, because, you know, I, I know <laughs> that if I preach Revelation a certain way, um, it could be a lot more exciting. Uh, the podcast, I mean, actually the podcasts have been doing really well since we've done Revelation, but there is a way of, uh, I know, going, say, to YouTube, if you find someone who really knows what they're talking about, even really engaging um, experts on the book of Revelation, I've been on there and i found, like, some world-class preacher, scholar, who's got six views on his video, and then someone who's just talking nonsense will have six million because it's possible to make Revelation really kind of exciting and I wouldn't say sexy, but I want to. Uh, you know, if you take all the highlights from the book of Revelation, there's a, there's a woman on a beast with blood and there's all, you know, there's stars crashing and all that kind of stuff. You could kind of, you, you could pack that into a sermon and make it, like a bestseller, you could you could make it a really r intriguing thing to engage with. Not that we want the messages here to be boring, but what we really don't want is to give people <laughs> the wrong impression about what the book of Revelation is about. I told the story of a guy just popping in uh, on Friday the week before last, and. I could tell from the way he was looking down the, the hallway that I was going to be in for a time. And he said, I really need to, to talk to a pastor about some end time stuff. I've got something to tell you about the end times. And, um, you know, four o'clock on a Friday, doesn't sound very pastoral, but it's not really, uh, didn't feel like the greatest use of my time. So I said, can you give me an elevator pitch? And in three minutes, he did like a, I'll hit, watch two minutes of, a video about the stars and then let me take you to a place in Revelation that makes it sound like Australia's going to be turned into a nuclear wasteland and a whole bunch of stuff, which is all very intriguing, but actually left me thinking, is this, is this it? Is this what this book is really about? So um, I want to make sure as we go through this book that we're doing it justice, that we're actually reading it as it is, and not kind of manipulating it to make it more exciting, um, that we're not reading things into it that aren't really there. So what we're going to get through today is a verse and a half. <laughs> There's more to it than you might think. Um, and I've called this message, Dear People of God, because the prologue in some senses is a little bit like a preview. It orients us to what's going to happen in the rest of the book. It gives it a bit of an overview and it sets the expectations for what we might find throughout the rest of the text of Revelation. And in these verses, we begin to read the actual letter. So in week one, 
we read what was probably written on the outside of the scroll. In week two, we read this little synopsis that um, is a part of those original scrolls. And now we get into the letter. And so it goes like this in verse 4 of the first chapter of the book of Revelations. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So let's begin at the beginning. And I've used yellow highlighter to help us through this. John. Funny sort of a way to start a letter, isn't it? We don't normally put our own name at the top of the letter. And actually, it's caused some sort of head-scratching for Christians throughout the centuries because it, 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 it leaves a lot of questions. Who is John? Um, you can imagine uh, back in the ancient world, even the first and second centuries where they're trying to kind of grapple with a text like this. They can't just get on the internet and check who John is. And this text was originally a letter that goes out to a few churches, so they might not have necessarily left a good record of who the author was. It was sort of taken for granted and then lost as a result. The tradition suggests that it is John the Apostle, so one of Jesus' apostles. And as evangelicals, uh, we generally don't love tradition until it comes to whether there's any question of uncertainty of the authorship of the Bible, and then we, we lean into it. <laughs> uh, and, and so I'm pretty happy with the idea that this is the Apostle John. But if you wanted to nerd out and go a little bit deeper, there are really faithful Christians who suggest a couple of other options too, maybe another guy called John, and then maybe there's also something going on with a naming convention for apocalyptic books, which means that uh, it's, a, it's another John altogether or another person. But what is useful for us to note here is it is somebody writing a letter. And one of the reasons why we think it might be the John the Apostle is the fact that he doesn't say anything else about who he is in that intro. Because if there was any room for uncertainty, he might have said more, right? It might be a little bit like um, in, I was watching the Premier League last night, if Ronaldo uh, got his agent to call a different club because Manchester United are already disappointing him. And they said, uh, Thomas Tuchel, uh, it's Ronaldo on the phone. Thomas Tuchel wouldn't have to go, that's the Chelsea manager, I just saw Chris over there, wouldn't have to go, Ronaldo who? Because everybody knows who Ronaldo is. So maybe the fact that it's just John, tell them it's John, is like, they'll know who, <laughs> they'll know who it is. Um, the fact that John has knowledge of these churches, the fact that it lines up so well with the theology of the Gospels, there's a whole heap of good reasons why it fits that this is the Apostle John writing this letter to the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is, as you can see in this map, modern-day Turkey. So we haven't gotten to the part where John talks about being on the island of Patmos there, but we hear about these seven churches which are marked with those big circles there 
on the map. And we'll actually see when we get into the specific words for the specific churches that it sort of follows the route of the Roman roads around. And um, seven's a significant number throughout Revelation and the scripture because it sort of uh, it, it can symbolize completeness. Um, it wasn't necessarily that those were the seven most significant churches in the region. You can see there's Nicaea up the top, and that's not one of them. Uh, it was just that, you know, if you wanted to get the word out to these churches and maybe to begin to filter it round to Asia Minor generally, these were sensible places to send a letter to. These were sensible places for John to invest himself in a pastoral sense. So looking even at these first two lines, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia really put me in mind of a bit of a Grahamism. And I wonder if you can guess which Grahamism. Graham, our senior pastor here, he says this a lot. He says, it's for us, but it wasn't written to us. We're reading when we read the text of Revelation an article that was written by a particular person to seven particular churches and so if we want to understand what God might be saying to us through this article through this book Revelation it might make sense that we first seek to understand what God was saying through John to these seven churches does that sort of seem logical seem rational I honestly believe that there is something here for us we wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't but I believe that getting to that goal, getting to that word, means that we understand what Graham constantly reminds us of. It's for us, but it wasn't written to us. These are particular people in a particular time and place. Grace and peace to you, John opens the letter. And um, you might be familiar with that as a kind of salutation. It's something that Paul says in some of his letters. But actually it wasn't necessarily a common way of greeting in the ancient world. It is a particularly Christian way of greeting. And the penny might drop for us when we look at these two words. So these are the words in Greek, charis and irene. And the penny might drop further when... I adjust that second word to the Hebrew, charis or grace and shalom or peace, completeness, wholeness and health. And these writers of these early documents in the New Testament, whether it's Paul or John here, what they're doing when they use this greeting is they're acknowledging that there is a new phenomenon in the people of God, that the people of God isn't just Israel anymore, but that there are Gentiles in these faith communities. And when we're looking at that, that is definitely Gentile country. That is not Palestine. So John is saying, you know, greetings to you, Gentiles and Jews, the new, uh, the new covenant people under God the new people of God. And I liked the way that Chris opened his sermon last week when he just, he actually had, it might have been exactly the same screen. He said, hey, um, if we listen to John's word echo through the ages here, uh, 
it might be some comfort for us to realise that what John's doing is he's just greeting the people of God in their vernacular, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And so we might hear the salutation of this book in our own terms, whether it's hey or g'day or how you're going. There is a sense in which John wants to meet the new people of God where they're at. He's bringing them a word and it gets better because it's not just from John. It says grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. If you look at this in the Greek, it's kind of sloppy actually. It's it's, um, uh, not like university or even grade 12 level Greek. But what it is is a kind of um, Greek shorthand for um, the way that God reveals himself in the Old Testament. So Exodus 3.14 is just one example where Moses encounters Yahweh, the God of Israel, and God, sa- God says, I am who I am. I'm going to send you, and you can tell them that the one who is is sending you. And there's a lot to this. I mean, you could preach sermons on this. But the God of Israel is saying, I am the foundation of all being. I was before anything else is. Um, and so I'm over and above all other gods. Uh, everything else comes from me or is subject to me. So we feel the greeting if we feel this echo through the centuries that John gave to those seven churches <coughs> in Turkey, speaking for God. Grace and peace. One of the beautiful things about that greeting is it is by grace that we come into the people of God. We experience the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. And it is once we have experienced those things that we come into the shalom that God has intended for us to live in. So grace is a way into peace. And that is what God is doing. And that, what, that, uh, that is what God is doing for the, the churches in, in Asia. But that is what God wants to do for his people, is doing for his people throughout the ages. So, from the eternal God, grace and peace. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, this line put me in mind of this guy who sells rare uh, Eastern European camera lenses at the markets because it's just a really weird thing to say. <laughs> Uh, like something you might hear from someone who makes handmade felt hats at the markets as well. And from the seven spirits before his throne, I made the joke that I wasn't putting uh, eccentrics or hippies down because I'm married to one in the first service. But yeah, I can kind of imagine uh, my hippie wife, if she wasn't a more orthodox Christian, going, I greet you in the name of the seven spirits. Like, what does that even mean? Uh, If it's weird for you, I'm telling you, that I spend way too much time researching this kind of stuff and it's still really weird for me. Uh, uh, There's a couple of sort of main options in terms of what might be going on uh, with this... (laughs) 
with, with, uh, with the seven spirits. Uh, one suggestion um, c- comes from the kind of uh, Jewish tradition uh, that there are seven archangels. And there's two references that are really clear to these seven archangels. And you won't find either of them in your Bible unless you uh, snuck your Bible from the Catholic church that you used to go to or the Orthodox church that you used to go to. Because in the Hebrew religion, there was the Tanakh, which is the books that we have in our Bible. We call them Israel scriptures sometimes or the Old Testament. But there are also some other really important books for those Hebrew communities that have sort of stayed important for Christians and Jews, even if we don't have them in our Bibles. And that's because, say, um, they were important to the writers of even the New Testament. Uh, Your Protestant New Testament, for instance, has a book in it called Jude, uh, written by Jesus' brother, and he references Enoch um, quite quite clearly. So there's some good reasons why uh, Protestants don't have that stuff in the Bible. It could be a bit confusing. But just to say there was kind of this religious thing going on in Judaism where they had this idea that there were seven archangels. And these two books that we've probably never heard of reference them, the book of Tobit and the book of Enoch. Um, And there's a very un-Jewish painting of the seven archangels. So that might be a bit weird for us, but there are Orthodox Christians who go, yeah, probably what he's talking about. The other option is um, a reference to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, And depending on the translation of the Bible that you do have, it might have a little footnote next to the seven spirits thing and say something like the sevenfold spirit. Has anyone got that? Um, And the suggestion is, drawing on this passage from Isaiah, that the spirit has like seven particular dimensions or qualities. The spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, while we might be more comfortable with this as an explanation because it comes from the Bible that we're used to, um, I don't know if it's a slam dunk personally. I'm not sure that Isaiah really thought about the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do. And also, um, I don't know that he's kind of making a systematic theology for what the Spirit is always like. Um, seems to me that there's a suggestion of some qualities of the Spirit here. Um, And this is maybe a good little kind of time to grab one of the tools that we developed in the first two weeks. Remember that tool of differentiating between doctrine, dogma, doctrine and opinion. So to make this dogma would be to say this is so serious that if you don't believe that the seven spirits talked about in Revelation 1 are the sevenfold spirits of the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Now, that just seems to be going too far for me because you don't really come across this anywhere else in the Scripture. Um, It would be weird if every time we used the Trinitarian formula we had to talk about the sevenfold spirits. To make it an issue of doctrine would be to kind of go, if you want to be my kind of Christian, you have to believe that the seven spirits that John talks about in Revelation are these ones from Isaiah. And actually you won't find a denomination or a movement that even makes it a doctrinal issue. 
an issue between a Baptist and a Pentecostal. This is one of those things, for example, this is one of those things that's probably deserving of being in the opinion box, right? And kind of going, I'm not exactly sure what this means. I might have some ideas, but I'm not going to kind of lord them <laughs> over anyone else. I'm not going to make too big a deal of them. And I want to suggest humbly that if you were to find someone making a big issue of this, uh, you know, making a, a kind of systematic theology, uh, they either don't know what they're talking about, because there's centuries now of Christians thinking deeply about this and having discussions about it, uh, and there's still not clarity. Or they're trying to, they're doing something quite divisive, potentially. So that's just a little... Uh, Part of what's going on in this series is we just don't want to not address things, right? We want to kind of, I want to be clear. There's, there's nothing we should be afraid of in Scripture. There's no questions that are off limits. We can come across something weird like this and kind of unpack it a bit and go, you know, there's probably lots that we won't ever understand about this until maybe when the revelation's all over and we get to ask John or Jesus in heaven. So... Um, one of the reasons why people like this second explanation as well is that uh, it kind of lends itself to some Christian Trinitarian theology, grace and peace to you from the God who always was, the God of Israel, the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus Christ, and we can kind of wrap that all up and go, bang, uh, that's a Christian explanation. But I'm, I'm not so sure that it is a slam dunk. As I've said, I think, I think it's something we can keep in the opinion realm. And here's where we get to, we're going all right? <laughs> there's, there's, there, it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot, there's a lot. Um, th- here's where we get to the meat uh, of what I, I think this passage says for us today. So John's greeting the seven churches that he's writing to. He's, he's given them grace and peace from God, the Father, from the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What I love about what John's doing here is I think he's given us a really good preview for the main feature. And what John has done, and I'm just going to take a little bit of time to talk us through this before we close with some worship. He's saying, here's three things about Jesus that I want the dear people of God, (laughs) people who are dear enough to God that he's sending them grace and peace through me, through this letter which is going to be read and going to be a blessing. Three things about Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the faithful witness. What does this mean? Again, it's helpful to go to the original language. And that word witness is the word martyrs, from which we get the English word martyr. And it means a person who witnesses to uh, something that God has done and has quite possibly, even probably been killed as a result. So Jesus is the faithful witness to the degree uh, to which he has given up his life as a testament, as a witness to the love of God. 
Jesus, in that sense, is like the ultimate witness, the ultimate martyr. He wants to make God's love so clear to the world that he pays with his life. It doesn't finish there, though. Jesus, as the ultimate witness, lays down his life in love, but, John says, is the firstborn of the dead. The Hebrew communities at the centre of those first churches had an expectation that the righteous would be resurrected at the end of time. And what Jesus does is drags that (laughs) into the present for us because he doesn't stay dead, giving up his life for love. He is resurrected by the power of the Spirit, and he becomes the first fruits of the new creation, right? He opens up the way in inheriting eternal life, in defeating death, for all of creation to come into newness, into resurrected life, and those of us who trust him to follow him. And then, and this is a very deliberate sequence the one who is the ultimate witness and martyr, who is the firstborn of the dead, resurrected to eternal life, in defeating death, becomes the ruler of the kings of the earth. Last week, Chris talked to us about how the Emperor Nero, who was empowered up until just about before the time they think that Revelation was written, you know, was, hated God and, and his followers in, in the Christian community so much uh, and, and, wha- and the sort of threat that they posed to the empire that he was having garden parties and lighting Christians up as human torches so that people could get drunk and eat rich food by the light of these flaming bodies. The churches in, in Asia Minor knew about this they knew about suffering they knew about martyrdom so the comfort that comes in john's words where he says actually you know the one (laughs) that this is all about the one that you followed he laid down his life for you he knows what martyrdom's about he has inherited eternal life and in doing so he has vanquished the principalities and powers so he has authority over everything that is going on in the world and he is in control he sees you he hasn't forgotten you he is in control an eminent uh, scholar on revelation a guy called gk beale he says of this passage and i think it rings true for the whole of the book because the prologue is really like a, a trailer a preview the description is a summary of Christ's role. He persevered as a faithful witness to the Father in the face of persecution, even to death, which he conquered, and he became then the cosmic ruler. So believers in this message, the readers of the Revelation in those seven churches in Asia, can take courage in the promise that if they maintain their faithful witness despite persecution, they too will reign with Christ since they have won the spiritual victory over compromise. Back to that question. Once we've worked out 
what it meant then and there, does it have anything to say to us in the here and now? I think those words resonate. (laughs) They echo, don't they? I mean, we don't know what it's like to experience martyrdom for our faith, but to the degree that we are aware of evil empires that are in opposition to God, which may may be inclined to persecute Christians at some point in time if they're not already, we can see the hope that actually this is business as usual for the Christian faith. Because even our Lord gave up his life for love and it was actually in his willingness to do that that he could be resurrected and have power over the forces of darkness. If you want it in the words of the Bible itself flashing forward to revelation 17:14 it says they will wage war against the lamb that is the evil forces in this world but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the lord of lords and the king of kings and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers the good news of the book of revelation that comes through even in the trailer here is that God has it in hand, (laughs) that he is the king of all the kings in the world, those that might oppose him with the most power, those that might persecute and even kill his followers. But that's not the end of things. In fact, there's a sense in which it unlocks what God wants to do in the world because by being a testimony to the love of God, There is opportunity for resurrection. There is opportunity for grace to flow out. I'm going to get the verse.